0: Hello, and welcome back to the Q's Conversations podcast. My name is John Boccasino, the communications specialist in Syracuse University's Office of Alumni Engagement. I earned my bachelor's degree in broadcast journalism from the SI Newhouse School of Public Communications in 2003, and later received my executive master's degree in public administration from the Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs in 2020. You can find our podcast on all of your major podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. You can also find our podcast at alumni.syr.edu slash and anchor.fm slash Conversations. At Syracuse, I
1: had the amazing experience to do a co-op with the local Urban League of Onondaga County. And my co-op entailed me working in their employment department, which essentially uh, did job readiness training for folks who live in the communities. And the very first person that I placed in a job on my own, I've long forgotten his name, but I'll never forget his face. If you were to walk into a room now, I I would recognize him. And I placed him with Yellow Freight Trucking Company. And after he completed his 90-day probation period, he came back to the Urban League offices And he was open-faced crying and he said, I wanted to come back and thank you for giving me a way to provide for my family. Even now I tell the story and I still get a little lumpy in the throat. You know, HR at that time was called personnel. And that, John, was the moment where I was like, I want a job in personnel.
0: Well, folks, today on the podcast, it is my great pleasure to welcome on Jackie Welch, who is currently the Executive Vice President and Chief Human Resources Officer with the New York Times. She has a fascinating story to share with us of managing people, especially during the pandemic, how she rose from having an English degree at Syracuse University to a pretty high ranking position with one of the best known newspapers in the country and a a fascinating take on leadership. I am so happy to have Jackie on the podcast. Thank you for making the time today. Thank you so much for the invitation to join you, John. I'm delighted to be here. Before we dive into your current role, I have to start off with this. You earn a degree in English language and literature at Syracuse University. And today you're an award-winning human resources officer. <laughs> Bridge the gap. How did you go from English <laughs> to HR?
1: <laughs> it's a great, it's a great question. And it, it does, it does have a story. So you're astute to, to ping on it. I um so for context, I am first-generation born American. Uh, and that's important to say here because as is the case for many people with that pedigree. Uh, I come from a family that very much invested in the idea of this country being plentiful with education opportunities. Um, So I'm from a working class family. I always worked to help put myself through school. And at Syracuse, I had the amazing experience to do a co-op with the local urban league of Onondaga County. And my co-op entailed me working in their employment department, which essentially uh, did job readiness training for folks who live in the community. So we found folks looking for employment and matched them up with employers who were looking for employees. And the very first person that I placed in a job on my own, I've long forgotten his name, but I'll never forget his face. If you were to walk into a room now, I I would recognize him. This tall, just elegant, very masculine African-American man and I placed him with Yellow Freight Trucking Company. And after he completed his 90-day probation period, he came back to the Urban League offices. And he was open-faced crying. And he said, I wanted to come back and thank you for giving me a way to provide for my family. And it's been you know, a number of decades later. And even now, I tell the story. And I still get a little lumpy in the throat. You know, HR at that time was called personnel. And that, John, was the moment where I was like, I want a job in personnel. I, <laughs> I, want to have, I want to help people have dignity in their work. And so that started me sort of using a career services center to figure out like, what did this career entail? What kinds of credentials I would have to build? Um, and pretty quickly made the determination that with an English degree, I would certainly need more academic experience as well as actual hands-on experience. So I went back South, New York, downstate, um, earned a master of science in human resources while working full-time uh, during a day. And that was the beginning, but it wasn't uh, for another 10 years before I got my actual first HR job, did a bunch of things in between, between earning my master's and actually working in
0: HR. It's really powerful. I, I love finding out the why behind mm-hmm. people's career paths. And just that level of fulfillment that you're getting. I mean, you're placing this young, this this individual, this gentleman Mm -hmm. in this career, and yet it almost feels like you are the one who is rewarded because you've helped this gentleman launch his career, get himself Mm -hmm. going with his uh, profession. Mm -hmm. Just how can you describe, I guess, the... That that what that does to you when when HR in general, it it can be seen as such an impersonal, even though it's Mm. the managing of people, it can seem very impersonal when you get down to it. That seems like the prototypical example of a personal relationship and how you're helping someone on a one on one level.
1: It's a, I'm so delighted that that you come away from that story with that observation because that you are precisely right as far as I'm concerned, or we're both precisely wrong, but we're wrong together. Um, <laughs> I do think when HR is done well, the function ought to reside between the company and the employee experience, and there are times when HR organizations can over-index on the one or the other, and that is the magic and science of leading. An HR function well, you are a steward of the organization and inside of being a steward of the organization, you have a moral obligation to the people. And so I'm always telling the teams I've had the good fortune to lead, let's never lose sight of the human and human resources. And so trying to create that human to human connection and making sure that everybody has the experience of dignity in their work. But it is that you make a great observation, it's a balance because I am a steward of the organization but i also have a obligation to the people who work there
0: how has that i can imagine it's a precarious balance and oh, sure. a a very you know complicated tightrope that you walk how has that situation become even more complex because of covid-19
1: oh what a brilliant question so it's it's if, what a brilliant question within the context of last year this time no one saw this coming right like we can all agree that when you know, in, I don't know, 2015, when people said, where do you see yourselves in five years? They didn't stay locked down, right? So, <laughs> so this, is, this is one of those Haley Comet moments. And so your question is a particularly important one, given the unique nature of what we're all experiencing simultaneously. The, the way I feel it most acutely is an observation. We've now been in this lockdown kind of reality uh, for a year, and I do have the general um, opinion that human beings are not meant to, to exist like this. And from the very beginning, my concern has been on the mental impact of this situation on folks, the random nature of the virus and how it moves, the random nature of outcomes in terms of fatalities, the quickness with which it spread, Um, how long it took us to really understand the science of what was really happening. So I think this is a lot of incoming that for the average person, whether consciously or unconsciously was a sort of blow to the psyche. And so I've been with the times just north of, of two years prior to the times I was leading human resources for Freddie Mac where I made a big deal about making sure we had mental health resources available to our folks. And so to your point in a normal environment You know, mental support is sort of buried inside of EAP, but it doesn't take front and center in the conversation. And there are any number of organizations that over the last few years have been actively working to reduce the stigma with respect to talking about mental wellness in the workplace. And I think COVID has ushered in an era where we're seizing that moment. But to your question, back at Freddie Mac, when this first started happening, I was like, hey, look, being able to work remotely is great. I'm glad we can do that. We also have to be as diligent and innovative in our thinking relative to how do we support our people and their mental wellness. So I do think that that's a significant byproduct of uh, COVID on the average person at work, and then calls into the line of sight around being that bridge between the institutional needs and the individual needs.
0: As much as we, we do want to hope that we come, and we will come out of this, but it's never going to revert back to what it was in pre March of 2020 you know it's I like to use the phrase the new abnormal because it's never <laughs> you know we're never going to get back to the the good old days of you know how work has been done all of these yeah. institutions are reevaluating what is your take on how the modern workforce especially being in charge of HR for such a prestigious company what's your take on how the workplace will change permanently you know moving forward
1: yeah, I like your phrasing about the new abnormal. I similarly don't think that there's going to be a reset to factory settings. And what I have often said is the ever evolving new normal or next normal. Right. It, it's been a 100 years since influenza. I don't think this is going to be the case this time. I don't mean to sound morbid, but the reality is we're a more interconnected world. And I do think pandemics are going to be a little bit more routine and customary than they have been up until this point. Um, so having said that, and to your question, I, we've been now a year plus in this global experiment of remote work. And I personally am not familiar with a single organization that's crumbled to its knees because people weren't working in a co-located fashion inside of four walls, right? <laughs> I haven't read of one. I've been looking. I haven't read of one. And so what that does in my mind is it shifts the balance in terms of office centricity is dead. Um, I don't think that we can have a reasonable expectation that talent is going to sort of revert to this idea that I have to go into a physical work location. And so the implications of that for organizations is to have more flexibility when it comes to work arrangements to have more flexibility with respect to where people can work on a permanent basis. And that resets a lot of things. It sets, it resets where you search for talent. It resets how you compensate for talent. It resets, you know, sort of organizing across state lines as well as uh, country lines in a way that we haven't had to reset prior to. So I do, you know, so if I had to headline my comments I would say, you know, office centricity is dead. And the, you know, sort of the subline to that would be, and you need to think about what that means for your specific workforce, right?
0: It was really powerful, Jackie, when you were talking about, um, again, the steward of the organization, the moral obligation that you feel in the role of human resources and never losing sight of the human in human resources. Where did that philosophy evolve from? How did you become so cognizant of the importance of people in people hmm. management and not just looking out for a company and their well-being.
1: Yeah, it's, that's another great nuanced question, John. So the 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 affection for the discipline started with the story that I, I shared with you. And I also shared that, you know, even after earning the master's, I didn't immediately work in human resources. In fact, while earning my master's, I worked full time as a buyer trainee and uh, with Lord and Taylor, which is a division of the main department stores back then, you know, when dinosaurs were still roaming roaming to earth. (laughs)
0: Um,
1: And then I left the island of Manhattan and moved to Atlanta, Georgia, where I lived for almost two plus decades. And then subsequent jobs were in consulting, first with what was then Towers Perrin and is now Willis Towers Watson. And then I got recruited from what was then Anderson Consulting and is now Accenture. And the importance of bringing the the consulting experience, the retail and the consulting experience to bear is, in retail, that's a people business. I mean that as quiet as it kept as it's kept, it was at least back then. I mean you, it's incredible to think about it now, but at the tender age of twenty one plus, right, right out of school, you know, you're basically running a business on someone else's nickel. You have responsibilities for being profitable, for having good margins and all the like. And at the end of the day, it's your ability to buy commodities that you can then sell at a markup that's profitable to the company. But the crucial piece of that is the connection to the customer to say, what can I get John to buy at the prices that I'm willing to sell it? And that's a human business. So, you know, you live your life forward, you understand it backwards. So the question, you know, I kind of go back and go, yeah, what did this connection happen? It starts in retail. Then I move into consulting and, you know, the nature of the consulting business is you very quickly have to connect to people. You're not hired for a job. You're hired for a project. That project could be a couple of weeks. It could be a couple of years. You don't know. So as soon as you sort of touch down, you've got to very quickly put out the feelers for who who were decisions made. What are the motivations for these decisions? Who do I need to calibrate with in terms of what we're trying to do here? What problems we're trying to solve for what we're trying to create so, there's a rush to connection immediately because you don't know how much time you have. So, seven years of working in that environment, I think, also sort of built this skill set around connections to people. So, by the time I got my first HR job, 10 years after earning the Master of Science <laughs> Human Resources, so there's something to be said about patience on this one. And I just ended up having so much fun doing these other things that I was like, you know, it was helpful to have a degree. It's not for naught. At some point, I'll get to HR. And my very first HR job, official HR job was with a manufacturing company, um, which was also an amazing experience because up until that point, I had only worked in sort of white collar environments. And now I'm working for an organization where 75% of my population of roughly 6,800 employees were hourly workers covered by union contracts who sat on pieces of equipment and made things in eight hour shifts. So nothing gets more human than a factory or a manufacturing floor, (laughs) right? Because productivity, it's all about their ability to produce an eight hour shift. And I spent a lot of time in plants, um, meeting with people, understanding working conditions, understanding their motivations and expectations, understanding what they needed in order to feel included, So that was, and I did that for six plus years. And so progressively because of all these exposures to actual people doing work and having to be somebody that connects to people it built a a really good solid foundation for the importance of how people are or aren't connected to their work. The the other thing that I think solidifies sort of my people first perspective is I did off ramp my career for a period of time um, to be primary caregiver to my dad who was ill for almost uh, I was off ramped for about four years and you know it, one of the illnesses that my, my father successfully fought I should say that was he had cancer so we spent a lot of time at the radiologist and when you're around death and dying um, and you're talking to people and you know sometimes they talk to you about work and what they miss about work or what they don't miss about work or what they would do differently if they had their lives to live over again so that sort of puts the humanity, you know, because invariably what would happen is people would see me waiting in a waiting room. Oh, where are you here? I'm here with my dad. Oh, what do you do for a living? Human resources. And people want to tell you, and they give you these really incredibly human anecdotes about their own experience. And I will tell you that that has made me a better human resources person because now, because of that experience, I look at benefits completely differently. Um, And I know what does and doesn't work in the system. And I'm always like, "Hmm, I think we can do better. I wouldn't choose that provider. Or if we're going to partner with that provider, these are the things that we need to unlock. So even that life experience informs
0: how I approach my job. There's a lot of emphasis that's being placed right now on DEI initiatives, diversity, equity, and inclusion. We've seen so much of the social justice movement Mm -hmm. have an impact and rightfully so in our workplaces. And it's really refreshing to see the long overdue catch up of the ground being made up that should have been made up decades ago, where we're finally starting to tackle these important issues. At Freddie Mac, your previous institution, you were honored um, by Women in Housing as its Diversity and Inclusion Award recipient. I know you can deflect the credit to the team, <laughs> but let's be real. You are the forward facing person whose picture is out there accepting the award. And right. I know it's a, a very serious topic, but congratulations. Thank on- you. Your work with Freddie Mac garnering that. What was it about Freddie Mac's efforts to to push for diversity and inclusion that merited this really prestigious award?
1: Thank you for the for the question and, and the ag- acknowledgement. I will. You can take, take a deflect.
0: minute to, to, to boast and. and <laughs> <live> for-
1: <laughs> but so there's a couple of things, and you know, so so in a spirit of, of full transparency, and if you're going to tell it, tell it all when you work for a mission oriented organization like a Freddie Mac or now a New York times where the sense of equity is almost built into the mission. That's an immediate tailwind, right? So Freddie Mac is in the business of making home possible, presumably for everyone who wants one and can afford one. So there's a, there's a certain amount of equity already built in to sort of the, the, the mindset of the organization, how it organizes, how it thinks, how it approaches the marketplace. So I have to acknowledge that there was a significant amount of tailwind that was just ripe for the leveraging. Um, Our regulator as well um, was very invested in, in, in making sure that DEI was present in our practices. So that's immediately helpful. Believe it or not, there are still organizations where you have to sell the value of DEI before you can even get to the work. And this, is, this was not the case at Freddie Mac. It's not the case at the New York Times. So that's point number one. Point number two is really thinking through what are the systems and practices, right? Because there's a tendency to think about DEI at the level of people and individual interactions. And really, in my view, what's going to advance the ball is a focus on what are the systems and practices that allow um, systemic bias to thrive. So I'll give you a couple of examples. In New York City uh, and in the state of California, it is illegal to ask job applicants for their past salary history because there's reams of data that prove conclusively that asking those questions disproportionately disadvantage women and minorities. So you're never able to sort of make a leap forward relative to how you're compensated because the starting point is always how much you've made, right, in the past. And so when I was at Freddie Mac, which uh, had offices in New York City, principally based in Virginia, but had offices both in New York City and the state of California, the company obviously had to comply with the law. But beyond that, Pretty Mac, we took a position that said, we're not going to ask job candidates for their prior salary history anywhere where we operate. Like, why would we create a two-state nation, right? Yeah. Furthermore, we're not going to ask, or so in Human Resources, we know what everybody makes. But let's say you, John, wanted to hire Keisha. Human Resources knows how much Keisha makes, but we wouldn't tell you what we would say to you is, John, for the role that you're considering Keisha, here's the range of pay and here's our recommendations based on that range of pay and Keisha's skills, abilities, experience. And so that's an example of where you disrupt the system that might have bias creep in. It doesn't even have room to breathe, so it can't grow. So this is my point around, or an example of the point around attack the systems that allow bias to thrive.
0: I want to go back in the the way back machine a little bit uh, and talk about. You mentioned your parents instilling in you the value of an education and lifelong learning, mm. and you parlay that to come to Syracuse University. What was it about Syracuse that really made that the place you wanted to study?
1: Yeah, I mean, so this is this is the eighties <laughs> when it was still the Orange Man. It was such a great athletic program, and I. I I liked the idea of the SI uh, Newhouse School. I didn't necessarily want to be a communicator, but I wanted access to to those classes and the public policy school. So it felt like it had a really good blend for someone with a liberal arts desire, right? Like I knew I wanted liberal arts. And so it felt like, oh, well, look, Syracuse has all these uh, points of focus that I don't want to major in necessarily, but I do want to take a class here and a class there. Uh, So that was really, really important. To me primarily and the diversity of the school. I mean, um, of course it was a, a, a nice representation of New Yorkers. At the same time though, I was attracted to the international population relative to the other school that I looked at looked at and that was important to me. Um, So diversity of just international student body, I wanted that exposure. I wanted exposure to places or disciplines that uh, the school was known for at the various colleges. It was still in New York State, which was important to me as well. I didn't want to be too tremendously far away from home. Um, So those were the three drivers for me. And then when I finally got there and discovered the African-American Studies Department, that was, it just sort of reconfirmed all
0: my choices. (laughs) I'm glad you bring up the African-American studies program because I want to, and I'm sure we'll get a nice heartfelt story, but Mm. she's retiring. I'm pretty sure this academic year, Uh, Dr. Janice Mays, I've been told was one of your most influential and important professors in your life. How can you summarize the role that she played at Syracuse and in your education and the impact that she had on you?
1: So I'm going to go back to one of my favorite things to say, which is, you live your life forward, but you understand it backwards. So she was a force then, and she grows in proportion the older I get. <laughs> if that makes sense, like, so now I think I I would meet her and not even know I'd be tongue-tied. I wouldn't even know what to say because as time progresses, she's she's over time be, become such an important part of 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 my life, really, just in terms of how she comported herself. So the my my favorite story to tell about Dr. Mays, and there are a couple, is it didn't matter what course you took with her. It could be a comparative literature, literature class. It could be an African history class. It didn't matter. You could not earn an A in that class if you did not memorize the map of Africa, period. It was part of every exam. And, you know, at the time, it felt like a chore, like, really? <laughs> like, what? <laughs> it's all Africa. Like, what, you know, why? And what I appreciate about what she did then, you know, there's this tendency to say Africa. Meanwhile, African has, as you know, many nation states. It's not Africa. There's not a monolith. More importantly, though, what I've now over time really anchored into and appreciated is how can you study something if you don't even know it's geographical makeup. Like anybody doing Asian studies should define Asia and people should have to memorize, like where are the countries that we call Asian? And you should, if you're gonna do European studies, you should memorize the map of Europe, right? Because that gives you a context that then builds a foundation for all the other learning. So back then it seemed like a chore, but what it did for me now, what I can appreciate it did for me is it taught me how to structure my own learning. Like so now I'm I'm prone to break things down to their component parts and go there's they sound alike, but they're different. You know, these countries are neighboring, but they're completely different. One's democratic, one's not. like there's differences. So just even the idea of making it a requirement of setting that foundation, of setting a pattern for how to learn, I attribute to that exercise. And to this day, I know the map of Africa. There are countries that are no longer named the way that I learned them, but they're still those countries for me. Like, I know what they call it now, but,
0: <laughs> at but least back in re- my day, yeah, at least as recently
1: <laughs> as 1991, it was called this, you know, um, and the discipline of it, it was just a huge discipline. My, my other very favorite uh, Dr. May's story is she's sorority sisters with the late great Toni Morrison. And she had Dr. Morrison to come and lecture at one of her classes that was taking at the time. And Dr., Mays arranged for Abina Aboa-Ofe, who's a classmate of mine, and together we'd resurrected the Black Voice newspaper. She arranged it so that we could interview Dr. Mays, which to this day, just even thinking about it, I still get goosebumps. And I don't know what she told Dr. Dr. Morrison, um, but she treated us like we were actual interviewers. Like she... With, you know, she just, I mean, we're 20, <laughs> right? We're 20. Maybe we've read the bluest eyes, you know, um, but we're not steeped yet. We haven't experienced like the full breadth of her canon. We don't yet know who she is. We kind of know, but not really. And I just, I remember at the end of the interview and in that Dr. Morrison voice, she said, so what are you all going to do with all this talent? And it... <laughs> I mean you just immediately sit up straight like right I have an obligation to do something with all this talent right <laughs> I mean and and to watch them I remember once watching them and they were holding hands walking across campus laughing and it was just such a beautiful as a black woman particularly it was just so beautiful to me then and more beautiful to me now to know these women of this these muscular minds and this great depth and breadth that they, they were friends that laughed. <laughs> right. Cause I mean, it's, it's, it's Toni Morrison <laughs> and Dr. Mays, but there they are just like, you know, on the quad, just being two friends who were laughing. So she just, she, she just raised the standard of not just an academic. Uh, she raised a standard for what it meant in my mind to be black to be female, to be smart, to be engaged, to have a point of view, to be able to knit together cohesive narratives based on random pieces of information—you know, she's she's definitely somebody that I will
0: always look up to. One of the—it's unfortunate that the pandemic uh, wiped out in-person programming because coming back together is such a, a joyous celebration. There's a reason it happens every three years. I feel Mm. like you couldn't have that much fun if it was every Mm. single year. You got to space it out.
1: (laughs) Yeah, It's a great observation.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I've been to those after parties. I've worked them at the alumni engagement office. And it really, it's such a great time to see everyone kind of coming to, literally coming together Mm. and celebrating their love of Syracuse. Mm. We're going to try to replicate that and tie it into Women's History Month with a Mm. program that you're a part of coming up, this great panel discussion On March 25th, there's really some giants in their industries, Giselle Marcus, Maria Melendez, uh, Constance Orlando, and yourself, you're joining this great panel uh, to celebrate Women's History Month and be part of the CBT Virtual Connection Series. That's got to be a little flattering to get to be a part of that. Mount Rushmore, if you will, of people sharing their expertise.
1: It's hugely flattering in fact. And, you know, in looking at the arc of these women's careers and their impact on their respective industries, I kind of go, did you mean to invite me? Today?
0: <laughs> <laughs> Is there I'm a different Jackie Welch that should right. be coming? To-
1: <laughs> I genuinely feel that way. So, so one, it's, it, so I am deeply and genuinely flattered and, and delighted to, to, to participate and I'm hopeful to have a perspective that's valuable to anybody who listens. And I certainly am looking forward to listening to the other panelists because I'm, I'm, I already know that they're going to bring substance, right, and elevate the conversation. Uh, doing, I will only say one additional thing, doing this podcast, doing the upcoming panel discussion, for me... Uh, is really an opportunity to share the highlights and the lowlights, right? Uh, And even the things that sort of make the cutting room floor, usually. Um, It's great to have containers like this one where you can be transparent and, you know, give away the HR confidential advice or say, look, I tried this, I wouldn't recommend it. Or the opposite (laughs) can be true. Like, look, what you're doing sounds fine, but here's a way that you might accelerate your progress. So I do very much relish those opportunities to share of my own experience. And not necessarily because it's all been stellar and perfect, but because, you know, there's learning in everything.
0: What advice do you give, whether someone wants to follow in your career path or whether they want to blaze a totally different path? What's the number one bit of advice you would offer to a student who is still at Syracuse and is considering where they want to do with that degree?
1: I struggle with it. Uh, For a couple of different reasons, the primary one being, and this, this happened recently, I was talking with a young woman on my team in FAT. I, as you know, just started with the Times just over two months ago. And because of this weird working remotely thing, I've been trying to think through how can I connect with people on my team in a way that's sort of meaningful. So I've been doing these 20-minute get-to-know-you talks with people. No agenda, just two questions. What do you most want to tell me? And what do you most want to know from me? And it's really interesting to see where people take it. Some people kind of go the personal route. Some people go strictly professional route. In any event, I recently had a conversation after you asked that question in your email to me and before us convening now to a younger woman and she talked about, and I won't disclose her name because I didn't get her permission to do so, but she talked about wanting to go to college to study fashion and how her father disabused her of that notion and said, you need to do something more pragmatic, you know? So she went off and got an accounting degree as well and it grieved me and it really sort of made me think like, You know, I think we're generally doing a disservice to young people, sort of hyper focusing them too early. Right. And one of the reasons I ultimately decided to major in English is because I had a conviction that if I could speak well and write well, somebody would hire me at some reasonable amount of money to sustain a a living. Like I just totally went with that. And I, while I admire friends who've gone on to be wildly successful, who knew from day one they were going to go to marketing and all this, I do think there's another category where you're experimenting. So, so I am not going to give any advice about A, B, C, because I just don't think life unfolds that way. What I will say is a couple of things. One, ask questions, right? Ask questions. There. People say it all the time, but there aren't stupid questions. There are only questions that don't get asked, right? Always ask what it is that you want to know would be one. Two, as you build your your career, there are three relationships in my mind that add velocity to your career, velocity and depth and breadth. And those relationships are mentors, coaches, and sponsors. And those things are sometimes used interchangeably, but they're very different. A mentor is someone who, as the Greek mythology says, sort of walks alongside you. I'm not gonna tell you what to do, John, but I'm gonna say, John, have you noticed this? Have you considered this? What would happen if you? So the mentor is walking alongside and talking with you and sort of broadening your perspective, opening up your aperture. That's very different than a coach. And as the name would imply, like if I played tennis and I want to improve my backhand and you're a good backhand person, I would hire you and say, I want my backhand to be as good as yours, Sean. How about 10 lessons, one hour each on Saturdays for 10 weeks until I get get this thing going? You know what I want, you know what I want. Uh, We've contracted, we know the terms of the agreement and you're gonna coach me. That's a coach, the coach is gonna tell you what to do, pivot, more speed, less speed, et cetera sponsor, so the coach is telling you what to do, talks to you. Sponsor is the person who talks about you when you're not in a room and able to advocate for yourself. Sponsor is the person that says, if you don't give John this promotion, if you don't give John this raise, if you don't give John this next assignment, you're an idiot. And here's why, because they know like John does this, 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 he has these capabilities. He's da, 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 da. So those are the relationships that as early as possible, you should be building and cultivating for the life of your career. So sponsor, coach, and mentor, and they're all very different and add value for different reasons. The last thing I would say is at the front end of your career, it really is about your technical and functional expertise. What is it that you know how to do? So you should be thinking about what's your skill set? What are your skill domains? And really focusing on being the best at whatever it is that it is that you endeavor to do. As you progress in your career, it becomes less and less about your technical and functional skills and more about these very sort of amorphous things like judgment, (laughs) your ability to lead a team. And so what people are looking at gets different. And I see a lot of people derail their own careers because they get hyper-focused on their skill domains when people are now looking at them for something different. Can you lead a team? Do you exercise good judgment? Can you read the room and understand the dynamics of what's going on? Can you get to a decision? Can you solve problems? And that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with your technical and functional skills. So those are the three things that I think are broadly applicable um, and, and don't fall into the disabuse yourself of being a fashion person. I just think that's (laughs) bad advice.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, who, who are any of us to tell someone that they can't find a way to make, you know, their passions turn into a career. And again, you know, from someone who is a one-time interviewer of Toni Morrison, who now is working <laughs> as the executive vice president and chief HR officer with the New York Times. I think your words carry a lot of clout. And I know I kind of opened with a joke with the one-time Toni Morrison reference, but it, it's true. It's You had a great amount of insight to share with us here on the podcast. I am so pleased we had the chance to tell your Syracuse story. And I again, implore all of our people who are listening Go check out the program. It's coming up March 25th. It's Thursday, 7 to 8 p.m. You can find out more information at alumni.syr.edu slash virtual. It's the CBT Virtual Connection Series. Jackie Welch, it's been a pleasure and it's been an honor. And I really appreciate your time today. Thank you, John. It was lovely to be with you. Thanks for checking out the latest installment of the CUSE Conversations podcast. My name is John Boccasino signing off for the CUSE Conversations podcast.